morning. It's good to be with you again. Last week, I was with the youth on a retreat, so I missed being here with you, but it was good to be uh, with them and with a couple others as well. And what a blessing to have baptisms this morning. It's a blessing to be quite uh, part of this family. So thank you for having me, and thank you for the prayers and the support. It means a lot. This morning we're going to be uh, in James. That can be found on page uh, 1011, if you picked up an ESV in the back. But before uh, we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our dearest Heavenly Father, we thank you for time to gather this morning, time to worship you, and time to hear your gospel, your gospel proclaimed in all different kinds of ways. So Father, would your gospel continue to be ever-present in our lives, present before us, help us to meditate on you all the more, and this morning, as we look at James, Father, just open our minds, open our hearts to hear what you would have us to learn this morning. Father, we thank you, and we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed, by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. 
but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading, to the hearing of his word. In February uh, of 2001, an electrical fire broke out at a small college in Tennessee. Bryan College, uh, which is my alma mater, um, it's also where both of my sisters went, and my father worked there for a little while. Uh, it's a small school, um, but they had one main academic building and administrative building. Lots of classrooms, offices, even the dining hall and the library were all in this one building. The building was uh, completed, uh, construction in the 1960s, and a fire broke out. And it quickly covered most of the third floor, and it caused water and smoke damage everywhere else. So when the news first broke, my father rushed up to the school, and there he stood alongside faculty and staff and watched as the firefighters tried, mostly in vain, to stop the flames. I imagine as they stood around that they began to ask questions, maybe not out loud, but they asked questions like, why? Why now? Why us? How could this happen? We are, we're a Christian school, and we are faithful in teaching our students from a, a biblical and an evangelical worldview. How could this happen? And I imagine they ask those questions because I ask myself those questions when I go through hardship. How could this happen? Why? Now, Bryan College did some things well. They persevered. They didn't blame God for anything. Um, but they kept going, and they tried to remain faithful. So James will go in the same direction in this text. He'll show us what not to do during trials, what to do during trials. And he begins with saying that everyone will face trials. And taking a, a cue from Matthew, those are our three points this morning. Uh, the first, that everyone suffers. Uh, the second, what not to do during trials. And third, what we ought to do when we encounter trials. And James begins with the first point, with an, an assumption. It's not even a question. It's the assumption that everyone faces trials. Everyone suffers. So if we look at verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not if, when you meet trials. But he begins his introduction uh, to the writing to the 12 tribes in dispersion. The Jews at the time are not in the promised land. They're scattered. They're not living under the promises of Abraham, the promises of David, uh, like they expected them to be. Those promises were fulfilled in a much different way, but they expected a Messiah to come and, and unite them all and to defeat Rome and, and bring them into a promised land. But these promises were fulfilled in a much different way in Christ. But still, they have this mindset of, of we are separated. We are facing trials right now. So even in the introduction and, and verse 2, James says everyone faces trials. Not if, but when. 
but un, so unlike the, the tight-knit close quarters of, of a small college, a Bryan College, uh, the dispersion in itself they would see as a trial. Uh, Bryan College did something pretty unique, I think, in, in a time of uh, testing like they had with the fire. In the auditorium, they set up kind of a command center. The president, the vice presidents, the deans, other key faculty all set up a, a command center in the auditorium. So every, every decision that got, had to be made, they scout across the room and, hey, what do you think about this? <laughs> but they don't have that here. They're dispersed. And when we face trials, it can be a very isolating thing at times to feel alone, to separated from God. And that's what trials often do is they make us feel alone. I mean, and even senseless. Don't say we don't understand why these things happen, why bad things happen. They test our faith. But these trials are not without a purpose. This is why James encourages us to count it all joy. Because these trials produce something. They, uh, there's a purpose to what we're going through. And if we think we're alone in our suffering and in our trials, we just have to look at scripture a little bit to find people who are going through hard times and suffering the way we do. So I want to look at Job just briefly as an example of why we suffer. Job perhaps suffered more than we could ever fathom. His wealth was devastated. His children were killed in a storm. His livestock and his livelihood were stolen. And his wife even tells him to curse God and die. And eventually his own flesh was even uh, affected with boils to the point he tried to scrape them off with, with broken pottery. Job knew what it was like to suffer, and he asks the same questions that we ask. In chapter 3, Job says, Why did I not die at birth, come out of the womb, and expire? His suffering is so great that he questions his very life. He asks these questions, and interestingly, God never really answers those questions. God does answer, but, but not the, the why. Why now? Why me? Why us? God never reveals to Job that, that Job's suffering would be a model for God's chosen people for thousands of years to come. God never tells Job of, of the test that Satan requested, and Job doesn't know of the, the immense cosmic, stake, uh, cosmic stakes that are wagered against his suffering. Job doesn't get the answer that he wants, but God does answer in chapter 38. God says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Job is humbled at that. Who wouldn't be? Job realizes that God is sovereign and he's in control and he has been since creation, since the very foundation of the world. God has been sovereign. When Job is humbled, his relationship becomes stronger and closer with God than it ever could have been without going through that. Job's suffering produces a steadfastness in that relationship that he doesn't get otherwise. 
And then suffering isn't just what Christ did for us on the cross. He provides a way for us to come closer to God and be in a deeper, intimate relationship with him. So our suffering produces that, and Christ, his ultimate suffering, provides the way to do that, doesn't it? One way that suffering does this, by bringing us closer to him, it, it does that by showing us what we need, what we lack. And James writes in verse 4, Let steadfastness have its full effect, that we may be complete, lacking in nothing. While suffering is universal, everyone experiences it, its universal effect is to show us that we are lacking, that we might rely on God all the more. And should we be tempted to think we lack nothing, James deals with that as well. James says in verse 9, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. In other words, whether you're rich or poor, you're going to suffer. But we're to rejoice in whatever happens to us. Trials come to us all. Trials come to us all. And if you think that your wealth will save you, it won't. Rejoice in your humiliation. Rejoice when your wealth is taken away. Rejoice when the comforts of your life fade. Rejoice when all that could possibly distract you from the surpassing greatness of Christ is removed, and you can see him all the more clearly. Sometimes trials do this. They clean the mirror, and we get a more high-definition picture of Christ through that suffering. But we don't often do this, do we, if we're honest with ourselves? When an, invest, when an investment goes south and we lose everything, we spiral into despair. When a relationship is broken and this relationship you used to count on for support gets knocked out from under you, we fall down. Or when a loved one passes away, do we turn to Christ and speak as Job did? The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So we must remember that even though everyone suffers, God is still present. He's still part of our lives. So look with me at verse 12, if you will. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So there, right in the midst of our suffering, God promises a crown of life to those who love him. So how are we able to remain steadfast when we suffer? Well, we remain steadfast because our hope is not in this life. Our hopes are not for temporary comfort and pleasure. Our hopes are laid up in the foundation of Christ, laid up in life with God for eternity. And ultimately, our hopes are laid up on Christ who suffered for us and suffers with us. Everybody suffers. Everyone faces trials. No one is accepted, but the purpose is to bring us closer to God, to bring us in closer relationship with him. That's wonderful, isn't it? <laughs> Seems to despair, but James doesn't stop there. He goes on to give us some practical advice. So this is our second point now to what not to do when we encounter these trials. And he begins in verse 13 with this advice. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. 
James here is making a subtle shift in vocabulary, and I'm, I'm sure you are careful readers, and you go, how did we get to temptation from trials? I thought we were talking about trials, and now we're on to temptation. And you'd be right. It is a pretty sudden shift. Um, it's, a, it's a nuanced and kind of hidden in translation. Uh, the word for trial kind of has this, this idea of to test something, like a, like a purifying fire that heats up gold and you can remove the impurities. You're trying to see what is at the heart of a person. That's what a trial is. But when that same word is used as a verb, it has just a slightly different nuance. When it's used as a verb, it means to, to be tempted to sin. So if you were reading this in the Greek, you'd see the same, the same word, but one's used as a verb. So it's just a slightly different thing, but James, by a little bit of wordplay here, is differentiating the trials and, and the temptations. So what James is getting at here, this is not simply a trial. This is a, a temptation. Sometimes God does give us a trial to bring us closer to him, but he does not tempt us. So I think James's point here then is to exhort us to see trials as a way of bringing us closer to him. Temptation often comes from our own sinful desires. Our own lusts and our passions can tempt us, but not God. Hardship from our uh, sinful, limited view, we could blame them on God. But instead of rejoicing, we turn from him and we look to ourselves, to our surroundings, our desires. So James warns of this. In verse 14, the weight of this problem, of this temptation, seems to be solely on us. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Trials turn into temptations when our own self, our own flesh, entice us. And temptation can be a very subtle thing sometimes. It can be hidden deep inside of us that get revealed with trials. It could be like a ring that's hidden in a trunk in a small house in the Lord of the Rings. It's just waiting, waiting, waiting for the right moment. But when Gandalf, the good wizard, discovers this evil thing hidden in Frodo's house, he sets in motion a plan to, to destroy the ring. So Gandalf tells Frodo what this ring is that, that Frodo's uncle has found and, and how there's this great evil surrounding this ring. But Frodo rejects it. He doesn't want it. He wants to be rid of the ring. And, and he pleads with, with Gandalf. He almost begs him. And he says, take it. Take it, Gandalf. And Gandalf replies coolly. But he grows a little more anxious as, as Frodo tries to push the ring into his hand. Uh, he says, I cannot take it. But Frodo then kind of cries at him. And he says, I'm giving it to you. But Gandalf gets a little angry. And he kind of backs away from Frodo. And he says, don't tempt me, Frodo. I dare not take it. Understand, Frodo, I would take this ring from a desire to do good, but through me it would wield a power too great and terrible to imagine. Did you catch the subtlety in his reply? I think Gandalf does want the ring. There's a desire in him to do good, but ultimately he knows that desire for an evil ring, the desire to do good with something evil, is itself evil. So he flees from it. He would attempt to do good with the ring, but in the end it would only be evil. 
the trials that Gandalf has faced in the previous stories and the trial that's before him now in this situation, his own desire is tempting him to do something evil rather than let this trial come to its good and natural conclusion. And we're tempted this way, aren't we? We're tempted to take an easier way to do things rather than let trials bring to completion what we're lacking, right? To bring us closer to God. We're tempted to do the easier things. And so maybe we're at school and it's easier to take an answer from a classmate instead of working on it yourself. Or perhaps it's easier to lie to a coworker than admit your own shortcomings. James gives us another piece of advice on what not to do during trials. Verse 16, uh, James writes that, writes that we should not be deceived. And we could really summarize James' advice on what not to do when we face hardship by saying, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived that the easier way is better. Don't be deceived that stealing an answer or, or lying to a coworker is better. Don't be deceived. So if we're tempted to think that, that God tempts us this way, that to believe that God only sends evil, James is telling us to put a stop to that right here and right now. And every good and perfect gift, uh, James continues in verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above. These good gifts and good things in life are from God and God alone. When we're in the midst of trials, it's incredibly difficult to see past the immediate circumstances. So don't let the circumstances we find ourselves in determine our theology, our, our view of God. The circumstances we're in, they're subjective, they're, they're changing, but God is steadfast. He's unchanging. So verse 17 again tells us that with God there is no variation, no shadow of change. When everything else is crumbling away or fading away, God is steadfast. He is unchanging. And perhaps this is why David in Psalm 18, he writes these words about God. David writes, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. David writes these words after he has been rescued from his enemies. He calls upon the Lord and he is saved. While enemies are seeking to destroy his life, as David is in deep despair, he recognizes that God is his salvation. God was steadfast. God was his rock. David does not blame God for these circumstances. He's not deceived. David knows that his rescue and his good gifts are from God. So we, like David, must not be deceived. When we face trials, don't be deceived. Don't think that God is tempting you to sin. God may be testing you in order to bring you closer to him, but he's not tempting you to sin. Everyone faces trials, but don't be deceived when they come. So our last point this morning is what we are to do when we encounter trials. So James begins the next section uh, of the chapter pretty sharply. Verse 19, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. There's no real getting around that, uh, is there? These are commands. They're imperatives. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. We may be angered 
by our trials. We may be angered by those who are a trial to us. And you right now may be angered by a young seminary student whose sermon is dragging on far too long into the afternoon. But whatever the trial may be, it's easy to become angered in an unrighteous way. And James tells us clearly the anger of men does not produce righteousness. So how do we do this? How do we remain quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger? He tells us, I think, in verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted word. This word, this is the gospel, the gospel that cries, we are sinners in need of a savior who is Christ, who has created us for good works. And these good works are exactly where James is heading toward the end of this chapter. Don't merely hear this implanted word. Don't just hear the gospel, but be obedient to Christ. So what are we to do when we face trials? We're to be obedient. We've been given the gospel, but we're not just to listen to the words of scripture, but to do the good work Christ has created us to do. We're not so quick to do this, are we? I certainly was not, uh, at least when I was younger. My parents and I often struggled over my obedience of doing what they asked me to do. I wouldn't, actually, I wouldn't call it so much of a struggle as me just being disobedient. Um, just not, it wasn't much of a struggle on my part anyway. Um, one thing that comes to mind is, uh, is a dehumidifier we had in our basement. My bedroom was in the basement, and especially after it rained, the basement would get a little musty. So they bought a dehumidifier to keep me from, from getting sick, and they didn't want mold to grow or anything, um, but the dehumidifier needed to be emptied from time to time. So they said, your bedroom is downstairs, why don't you go empty it? I said, yeah, sure. I'd go downstairs, go to my room, and completely forget to empty it. Uh, I knew what they had asked me was good for me. I acknowledged that they had said this to me, and I failed to do it. And oftentimes, that's, that's how we are. We know what we're called to do. We know that we're called to be obedient yet we're slow to do it. I think this is what James is warning us of. We can be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, but we must do, as James says in the final verse of this chapter, verse 27, visit widows and orphans, keep away from sin, keep yourself unstained from the world. We're not to sin at all, we know this. We're to be obedient toward the word. In other words, we're supposed to keep doing in trials what we've already been called to do as Christians. Even in the midst of our sufferings, we're still called to be obedient. So I think we stay obedient. I think we continue to be obedient by allowing trials to work their, com- their perfect completion on us. How do we rejoice when these trials come to us? But we must remain like Jesus did. We must be humble. Just as Job was humbled when God answered him, we must be humbled. It's only in humility that we can grow closer to God. If we are proud, putting ourselves above God, thinking we know best and know best what to do in our trials and in our tough situations, then we will most certainly be tempted to sin. But if we humble ourselves to God and to his will, if we follow Christ who humbled himself for our good and to glorify God, then we will be complete, lacking in nothing because we will have a relationship, a close, deep, personal relationship with God himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
sin has come into the world and we face hardship and we're tempted to sin more. But Father, I pray for us this morning that you would humble us to bring us closer to yourself. Help us to rejoice through our trials because we know that if we're being trialed, you're making us closer to you. Father, thank you for sending your son to suffer, to experience life with us so that we could relate to you all the more through his suffering. So Father, as we go out from here, help us to be encouraged, to know that we have a God who suffers with us and for us and a God that we can turn to in the midst of our trials because we are not alone. And we know that our trials are meant to bring us closer to you, Father. So as we, as we go out, Whatever we're facing today, whatever we face tomorrow or in the weeks or months or years to come, Father, help us to remember that you are drawing us closer to yourself and you're doing it by your son who suffered for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.